0: Hi, everybody. Vanessa here. I am dropping in your feed with a bonus conversation to share with you just a little bit more about our upcoming Emily Dickinson pilgrimage. I'm joined by a very special guest, Stephanie Paulsell, who will be one of the two faculty members on this trip. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Vanessa. So for those of our listeners who don't know, you are a professor at Harvard Divinity School. And you have been a mentor to me since the very beginning of all of our work at Not Sorry. And in fact, you were the inspiration for our very first pilgrimage. You were on our Virginia Woolf to the Lighthouse pilgrimage and have been, this will be your third one with us. That's right. That's right. I'm wondering what you look forward to about this pilgrimage, having this expertise, but also this, you know, the specifics of Emily Dickinson.
1: Well, the thing I love about our pilgrimages is the combination of reading and walking and talking. And I know on this pilgrimage, we're going to walk from Amherst, where Emily Dickinson lived her whole life, to Northampton. And this is very much her landscape. It was a landscape that she loved and that she paid really close attention to. It was the landscape in which she experienced the sacred much more than in any religious community. So I'm really excited to be reading her and talking about her and thinking about her with others. You know, reading Emily Dickinson as a pilgrimage itself, she wrote nearly 2,000 poems. Um, I have a friend who calls her collection of Emily Dickinson's poems her psalter. She's just continually reading through them, and I'm trying to do that as well. And because she wrote so much, I'm just constantly discovering Poems I didn't know about that are, you know, mind blowing. So I'm excited to have a community of readers and walkers to think about them with and talk about them with.
0: You and our other faculty member, Amy Hollywood, have co taught a class on Emily Dickinson before at Harvard Divinity School. I'm wondering what you learned in co teaching the class that you're going to bring onto the pilgrimage.
1: Well, that class really focused on close reading of the poems. And when I think about that class, I think of all of us sort of with our heads in our hands, looking down at at our books on the desk, spending, you know, half an hour over a phrase, a word, um, trying to excavate more and more meaning from her work. One of the great things about Emily Dickinson is she, in her manuscript, she left in a lot of her variant lines. Like she didn't always decide like which line she liked best. So there are lots of different possibilities and ways of reading her poems. And I really loved that. So one of the questions that we really pondered is who is she writing for? Mm. Because she she only published five poems in her lifetime and those were edited beyond what she wanted. Mm. And she would sew her poems, she would copy them out on notebook paper and she would sew them into these little packets and when she died, her sister Lavinia found them, you know, all of these packets, plus lots and lots of poems written on the backs of receipts and on little pieces of paper. And so we we sort of pondered, who who is she writing for? And, you know, I think what we came to as a group, and that made a lot of sense to me, was that she was writing for us. You know, she was writing for the future. She She didn't expect to be wholly understood, I think, in her lifetime. And she preserved those poems so that, you know, the right readers would eventually get them. And I feel like her solidarity really extends over time and space. She performed a kind of solitude that bewildered the people around her, her neighbors and and the her admirers who wanted to meet her and talk to her. And she would, sometimes when people would come over, she would play the piano for them, but keep the door closed between where the room where she was and where they were. And it, it, bewildered people. They couldn't understand it. But she's living in a time when, as the unmarried daughter in the house, she's supposed to be receiving the guests and pouring the tea and keeping the conversation going. And she made a lot of choices so that she could be a poet, so that she could pursue her vocation. And her sister Lavinia said she was always willing to make time for a rewarding person. But she just didn't let, you know, she just didn't see everybody who wanted to see her, which is Mm -hmm. even today is kind of a startling choice for a woman to make. Yeah, She has this great poem that begins, you know, the soul selects its own society, then shuts the door, closes the valves of her attention against others like Stone. She made a lot of choices so that she could be the poet she knew herself to be. There's a wonderful poet, contemporary poet, Susan Howe, who loves Emily Dickinson. In fact, Amy Hollywood, who's going to do the pilgrimage with us, is teaching a course right now on Susan Howe at the Divinity School. And she has this great sentence about Emily Dickinson in her book, My Emily Dickinson, which goes, one unchosen American woman alone at home and choosing. And I love that sentence. It's got a great like rhythm for one thing, but, you know, she's not She's not exactly alone at home. She's living with family. She's living across the yard from her brother and her sister-in-law with whom she was passionately in love. So there were people, she wasn't totally alone, but she did choose solitude. She chose a practice of solitude and particularly an interior solitude so that she could be a poet. And even today, I think it's startling for a woman to say, I can't talk to you right now, I'm, or I can't go to dinner parties, or I can't, yeah, I can't do all the things you're asking me to do because I have this work I'm meant to do.
0: Yeah. You know, the theme for the pilgrimage is solitude. And I'm wondering what lessons you think about Emily's solitude are relevant for today. I definitely hear you just on like feeling empowered to say no. They're like, I've got reading to do. I have an interior life to attend to, but I'm wondering if you have any other thoughts about Emily's solitude and sort of like the blessings that you hope it offers to people today. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Can I read a poem? Please. This is a kind of a late poem. It's number 1,696 in the Franklin book. And it goes, there is a solitude of space, a solitude of sea, a solitude of death, but these society shall be compared with that profounder sight, that polar privacy, a soul admitted to itself. And I love this poem for a lot of reasons. One is one of her editors gave it a last li- another last line, finite infinity. But that's not how Emily Dickinson ended it. She ended it a soul admitted to itself, dash and you know i think what she's describing is you know a profounder solitude even than death a profounder solitude even than space so the interior solitude that's available to us to us all that polar privacy is the profoundest sight we can experience and i think you know for her i think that interior solitude that that free space You know, it makes me think of Teresa of Avila, who says to her nuns, you know, she's describing a pilgrimage inward to your interior castle. And she says to her nuns in her book, Interior Castle, you can take this journey anytime you want, and you don't have to ask anyone's permission. That's just available to you all the time. That's just by virtue of being human, you have this. And I think Emily Dickinson thinks it's really important to explore that profound sight of polar privacy that we all have within ourselves, that it's a space of freedom and it's a space of creativity and it's a space of solidarity. I mean, I think, you know, in, in the literature on Emily Dickinson, there's a lot written about her solitude. And sometimes, you know, it's said that her the kind of isolation and solitude that she began practicing in order to become a poet, that it just gets deeper and deeper and she just gets more and more Alone, I don't think that's right. I think like a lot of practices of solitude in history, her practice of solitude allowed her not only to access her own polar privacy, but to imagine everybody else's. Hmm. And it cultivated a solidarity that's crossed time and space into the future where she thought
0: her poems would be read. Um, She saved them so that they'd be read. I find the idea that she wrote to us from, you know, 160-ish years ago, that is the closest as an atheist that I come to understanding God's love, right? That like someone so long ago could send me a message and essentially, right, like say, you actually don't owe this person that email. It feels like a, a message from the grave that feels just so profound to me. And that she tended to these poems physically and sewed them together and left them. It feels like an offering of grace that is just deeply moving to me. So we are going to go to her house and the museum. We are going to get to look at some of those tiny objects that she wrote on and stitched up. We are going to get to study with you and Amy. And you and Amy, it has to be said, you're not just two scholars at the top of your field. You are also best of friends. And so watching the two of you argue about Emily Dickinson, I feel like is a show that I'm very excited to watch. And then, I mean, it's just going to be like high summer. So like long days up north and this beautiful landscape and delicious food and long walks. I'm just so excited. I'm actually not necessary on this pilgrimage and I'm just like, sorry, I'm going. You're absolutely necessary. (laughs) So if people are interested, they can register at readingandwalkingwith.com. Just thank you for going on another pilgrimage with me and co-inventing this. Thank you for inviting me. I can't wait.